Hello and welcome to Joe Thomas Comics. This is the podcast where I talk with friends about the comics we've been really enjoying lately, plus occasional solo episodes and creative interviews. This is the third time I've recorded this intro, and speaking of threes, I talked to Mick Byers, who's um, kickstarting his uh, issue three of his comic series, A Queen of Mars. Issues, well, issues one to three are available on there to back now. And it's live until March 15th. I was a lot more concise with this on the second go-round. But, yeah, you'll just have to stick with this one. So, yeah, go support it if you're interested. It's um, it's really important that we support these indies, etc. And these themes to get brought up of supporting indies and making sure that they get the support that they deserve. I've read the first two issues, and if you're interested in this, I think it's worth checking out. It deserves your support. I've said support way too many times yeah there's lots of awesome rewards to go for lots of goodies it's already been funded but you can still check it out until march 15th i think i've said that already the link to the kickstarter will be in the description don't think there's anything else to mention something to lose track of what i've said across recordings but i think i'll just leave it there instagram twitter naked comic geeks Comica. Yeah, this was a really fun conversation, so I'm glad we were able to work it out. Go support, support, support. I've said support way too many times. I hope you enjoy, and I'll see you on the other side. So, Mick, Michael, welcome to the podcast. Is, is there one of those you, you prefer? Because I know that everywhere you, you say Mick, but when we saw Tested, you said Michael, so I wasn't sure. Oh, yeah, no, I usually go by Mick. Um, in second grade, there were three Michaels in my class, and I got to pick last, so I've been Mick ever since. Ah, uh, yeah, I, I mean, it's just going immediately off on a tangent, but it's <laughs> like when um, back in school, there, there were a few different, like, Josephs and Joes, and uh, I just, just remember that. Yeah, it's funny, there's a conversation that came up the other week where there were, like, two Joes, and, and there's, there was another Joe in this group I was sort of socialising with, and... The, the other one was like, well, I, I'm legally called Joe. Like, they actually were called Joe, whereas I, I'm just Joseph that's shortened into Joe, so. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so how are you? Pretty good. Good, good. So, before we get started, or uh, sort of lead us into it, do you want to introduce yourself and the a Queen of Mars, the, the Kickstarter you're currently running? Um, yeah, my name is uh, Mick Byers. I, uh, I make comics. Uh, I've been staying home with my daughter since she was two, and she's in her junior year of high school now, so I've got a lot more time on my hands. And I've always liked comics. I've always enjoyed making comics. I've always enjoyed reading comics, so it uh, seemed like a good use of my time. Yeah, why not, if that's what you're interested in have you how long have you been interested in comics is it, is it something you've been interested in since childhood or yeah um, i remember my like finding my first comic in was it my aunt's house yeah because it was it would have been her nephews or her her sons so my my cousins uh they just had like a whole slew of books it would have been like the late 80s early 90s around then um and it was a copy of superman number 50 where lois lane accepts clark clark kent's proposal for marriage like it was i loved it i loved everything about that book it was a the fourth part of a four-part storyline had four different teams all working on it so it was just this hodgepodge of styles and content it was great um 
And I always wanted to be in comics. And I'd go through phases where like sometimes I didn't want to draw the comics. I just wanted to write the comics. And sometimes I wanted to draw the comics, not write the comics. Uh, but now I just do both because it's easier that way. Although I do draw for some people. Nice. And do you want to maybe say a bit about introducing um, your book, Queen of Mars, for anyone that has, hasn't heard of it already? Oh, yeah. So Queen of Mars is a love letter to the work of Edgar Rice Burroughs. Um, I grew up on his books uh, as a kid. I've read, I'm pretty sure everything he's written at this point and the Mars books I've read more than once. Uh, and kind of what fascinates me about stories is the idea of what happens next, like after your big resolution from your major storyline, like where do these characters go after that? And so with Queen of Mars, I'm kind of asking that question from some of the side characters he introduced in the first three books. It was after John Carter has come to their planet and totally messed up everything they thought they knew. What do these people do next? How do they find their place in a completely changed world? Uh, and so, like, our, our main characters kind of run into each other accidentally and find they have a common purpose in discovering what this new world is like. And that's that's where the the first issue kind of picks up. Nice. Yeah, I've always thought that was a fun idea. So it's, it's good, fun to hear you say that about, like, picking up on... Like, after the big story concludes, I, I remember myself first hearing about like I can't remember exactly what it was, but one of those stories, and I'm like, oh yeah, it's like that's a good point. That's like an, it, it felt not a novel idea to me. So that's, that's cool. yeah. So how did you first discover the works of Edgar Rice Burroughs? Then uh, my dad was a huge fan. He would read uh, Tarzan to me when I was a kid. Um, so I read all the Tarzan books first, uh, and once I ran out of the Tarzan series for the second time, I started looking into the other stuff he had done, and uh, the Mars books were not my favorite at first. Like, I only read them once. It wasn't until I was probably in my 20s that I, I went back to them and uh, read them again and took a liking to them. But he's got, like, a lot of different worlds and type of worlds he plays around in and he just kind of tosses ideas out like they're candy and you know just leaves them laying there after the parades pass by so uh queen of mars actually started as an experiment i was just trying to learn a new style trying to experiment with my work process on the computer and i was sharing it on some Edgar Rice Burroughs Facebook pages and uh, people really liked it and they were asking me what I was going to do with it, where it was going to go. So uh, after I got about probably three quarters of the way through the first issue or what became the first issue, uh, I decided to take it to Kickstarter, try to formalize the idea, even out all the you know plot and character bits and uh, see where it went from there. And a lot of that early Edgar Rice Burroughs stuff, like the first, I think, five or six books of the Mars series are in the public domain. And I'm only working off of the first four, really. Uh, so some of the stuff he introduces, I'm not following down on. It's just really kind of after his big, after John Carter's first arrival and first big changes is where I'm focusing my attentions on. Right, yeah. Because it was only earlier that I... So I looked up the name of Edgar Rice Burroughs because I, I mean, it's it sort of it clearly stated about that that's where you're taking your influence from. But for some reason, I hadn't sort of like looked looked him up before because I, I obviously now know 
Like, I, I mean, I know about like Tarzan and John Carter, but I didn't recognize the name. So it was like when I when I looked them up and it came up with all those things like Deja Thoris as well. I was like, oh, I've heard of these, but I just for some yeah. reason hadn't heard yeah. of yeah. I mean, like him himself. You know, he was a much bigger deal much earlier in last century and has kind of faded in relevance and popularity uh, over the decades. And I think, you know, like that's natural to some extent, uh, but it's always stuff that I've enjoyed. And so uh, I think you can find relevance in project stories and ideas that may seem to be past their prime. And that's kind of the challenge here is that, you know, Princess of Mars came out in 1912, like over 100 years ago. And there are certainly attitudes towards race and sex and uh, masculinity that are, you know, outdated. And it's finding part of the challenge is finding a way to explore those concepts that both take into account where we are as a culture and a society now, but not just trash all over the original work that clearly was influential and important to a large number of people. And so trying to find that balance has been, you know, one of the more challenging, but also one of the more rewarding aspects of of working on the series. Right, yeah, because I'm sure it is an interesting balance because you have... Things like John Carter and J.J. Thoris that are at Dynamite these days, I think. And sometimes Dynamite, I'm sure there are some good, like, actual stories at Dynamite, but they've got a reputation for the, sometimes sort of, like, just having lots of varying covers about, like, like skimpy women and, and stuff. So, and again, when you look up those old books, and, and like sort of some of the characters involved, you do see those old like maybe archetypes. The right word of like the big like strong men and like skimpy like women and yeah, sort of, like, the clothes yeah. you, you might think of. So yeah, yeah and, like I like to think that I'm accurate to the works of Edgar S. Burroughs in my own way. And that like, listen, if Dynamite called me tomorrow and was like, "We want you to work <laughs> on the book," I absolutely would say yes. Uh, but I also kind of enjoy staying true to the books in my own way and like what I perceive. Like, I'm not so concerned about being true to the literal text of the book. I've clearly diverged from what was written and how it was written. But what I'm kind of treating as my focus and my guide through the process is when I was a kid, what did I take away from the books? What was I excited about? What did I consider to be, you know, important and of worth you know worth note and i mean i like to think that i'm making a book that people will you know enjoy to read on its own but is also faithful to the world he created yeah so i don't want to speak for you but would you say that you're just trying to like take the fun and creative elements whilst also trying to shed those like outdated archetypes and yeah and i think that's the nature of any sort of like yeah adaptation right like true because what i'm doing is fan fiction you know i'm taking this world i was a fan of and i'm creating a new world or my own version of that world but you know if i was working on a dc or marvel property it would be the same thing like i grew up on superman comics i would love to write and draw superman comics but even then it would just be a form of fan fiction and 
I think the trap you can easily fall into is, you know, finding those Mary Sue elements and playing those up or trying to excuse the more problematic elements that like we've moved past or glossing over, you know, anything distasteful, I guess. Uh, So like there is that because like the world we live in now is not the world in which these books were written and we need to be cognizant and aware of that. And like the same story that attracted so many people in 1912 can still attract people today, but like they aren't the same people. So if your story doesn't change and your story doesn't find its relevance in your era, then it's always going to be kind of like relegated to mediocrity and uh, derivation because you're not finding that new side or that new element of it to to bring to the forefront and share with people. Right, yeah. And it's interesting when you brought up about the idea of like like professional fan fiction and doing it in air quotes when that argument gets brought up with like work for hire or Marvel and DC and it, it does something that like sort of, like makes me think it's like oh yeah it's like especially in some ways when like hopefully the creators have passion for like, like what they're writing at, at the big two or in like working for for hire or whatever it is so yeah yeah and like I would want to do you know if I got a chance to write Superman I would want to do write by that character uh but I wouldn't I mean, for a long time, the comics I wanted to write for DC were the comics I grew up reading. Like, I just wanted Mm, to essentially rewrite the same stories I read. And that's, there's no, there's no benefit there. There's no benefit to the audience in rereading those stories. There's no benefit to the creators to not finding new avenues to explore. And by the time I started this project, I had kind of come to that realization. So I didn't want to just adapt one of Edgar Rice Burroughs's earlier works and you know change it to update it i wanted to find the space in those stories where it gives you a natural jumping off point to go and explore to go and find new territory and new content and out there in those kind of like you know the wilds of abandoned plot points you can find opportunity to you know adapt and change as needed more so than well you know everything you thought you knew was a lie and we're going back to basics but we're changing the basics kind of attitude yeah i know that uh, i wouldn't sort of say give um specific ones i'm thinking of just to to not steer the conversation too far off track but you can see the discourse in like the superhero comics when creators are bringing things back that nobody was necessarily asking for and which like because and that's not to say that because there's the whole thing of um like creators should just not creators shouldn't just do things that people are asking for of course that's that's like the whole thing but uh, but then there's the whole thing about when creators are just sort of playing the nostalgia hits from their childhood right. like as you mentioned often things they enjoyed when uh, like if it's already been done and it's been done like better then there's no point there's, there's no point um i i know i said i wasn't going to give an example but <laughs> I, 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 I know I, I know people have something like doomsday clock from dc has generated a lot of discourse over the years and fair enough i know like jeff john in general with all the discourse around the return of Barry Allen and Hell Jordan in the 2000s and all of that business, that's it's all the example I I, I was thinking of. But yeah, it, it, it didn't take me long to give in. Yeah, I mean, like I remember, 
I remember not being excited when they announced that how Jordan and Barry Allen were coming back. Like they were never the flash and the green lantern. I grew up with like how Jordan, I mean, uh, Kyle Rayner and, and Wally West were always my versions of those characters. And they weren't even shunted aside to make room for the next generation. They were shunted to the side to make room for the past generation. And so I kind of stopped like that, like that Jeff Johns era of DC is kind of when I like I started to stop collecting and it took a while. But then, you know, when the new 52 happened and they made a big deal, like Dan DiDio would constantly talk about like, hey, we're taking we're taking giant steps forward. But then the new 52 came along and to me, it felt like a giant step backwards. We're like all this progress, all these legacy characters, all this history was just completely tossed out so they could, you know, readapt the original stories, but with modern sensibilities. And like, that's when I realized that's when I realized that the Superman comics I wanted to write were just the Superman comics I read. And that kind of i guess for lack of a better word cured me of uh wanting to work for dc and marvel where it was like i would rather go out and find space for my own stories and my own interpretations of older stories instead of working in an environment where at any moment they're just going to voluntarily decide to roll the clock back because that's what a spreadsheet says will make them money yeah and it created a really weird like schism where um you have like like fans of the the original of Barry and say how like originally who were still around, and then you have people from that sort of twenty year period where Wally was around are fans of Wally, and yeah. then you have like a weird sort of third generation of people like me where we like like my the first comic series I ever read was um the first half of well just well New Fifty Two Flash in general, but uh, I particularly loved the first half by Francis Melipon and Brian Bracciolato. Oh yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> again, like I, I got into that through the show. Like I started watching the show, and then I read the, the Flash comic, and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera, to this day, so uh, I, I don't have too much of an attachment to Barry, but it, it's sort of an interesting example to um, think of that w- w- when you have like multiple generations of like Barry, Wally, back to Barry, and then like. Now, what he's back, uh, it's, it's, it's a whole thing. It's a whole mess, especially with the Dan Tadeo's meddlings over the years. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, anyway, and this ties into sort of something that I was talking about on a, another creator interview yesterday. Um, so I, I won't sort of belabor the point, but I it, it's, it's nice when you can like bring your own like flair to a comic. And like, because I'm just finishing up the new 52 run of justice league in the, in the, the big omnibus collections and yeah it, it is interesting to think about how it just fully replaced the main dc line for those like years as opposed to something like the ultimates is what yeah. you're saying where, where you had that as like an option this was just like completely replaced so it's quite interesting to go back to it and be like because part of me is like uh, I could just imagine this as like an Elseworlds story, like as like an Ultimate style thing. When in reality, yeah, like, yeah. it did replace the line for the whole. Like, it, yeah, made, like you, know, you wouldn't be able to tell. Well, like really, kind of infuriates me to like talk about the new Fifty Two because it's like it's kind of like my comics Rubicon, and like that decided me like what kind of like creator and fan I wanted to be. But like 
Connor, the Superboy at the time, like was a hugely important character and just completely erased and turned into a completely different character that they then told me like, no, 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 it's the same character. Like it wasn't at all the same character. And even though they've recently brought back that character, and again, I say that in the air quotes, uh, it's not that character because you're missing 10 years of stories. You're missing 10 years of continuity. You're missing 10 years of growth and development of that character. You're just bringing in this entirely new character and saying it's that old character all over again, which is kind of the feel I got from everyone in the new 52 who wasn't Batman because Batman always sells. So like, why would you, why would you ever mess with that? But that was also kind of important to me, like thinking about that informed a lot of the decisions I made with my Mars story because I didn't want to do that. I didn't want to bring in versions of the character. I didn't want to bring in the characters Edgar Rice Burroughs had created and just present you with brand new versions of them. So uh, the one of the main characters is Fedor, who was in books two and three of the original Mario series. And she is different here in my story than she is in those stories, but it's because of the character growth she went through in books two and three. And I try to make that a through line on all of her decision-making and character motivation and goals. And I constantly refer back to those books and it's like, okay, so in book two, this is what she was after. In book three, this is what she was after. And this is where she ended up. And so to assume that a person can get from that point A to that point B, where now am I taking her that will be point C? And can I make that a believable journey from A to C? And it's it doesn't feel difficult because I've read these stories so much and I have very clear ideas. But again, like it's all kind of fan fiction because someone else can read those stories and take something completely different away. But that is the fun and the challenge of it is exploring those places where, you know, what if we'd seen more of her in book four? What if we'd seen her in book seven? What if she had gone on and done more things? Like, who would she be? And I like, I really like trying to, you know, suss that out on my own and kind of make her my own character, but stay true to what Edgar Rice Burroughs did as well. Yeah. And so I think we might have alluded to, to it earlier, but didn't explicitly mention it. But when you must have decided to continue the, the series as, a, as an ongoing thing or as a continuing thing. You changed the name from He May Yet Conquer to A Queen of Mars because that was He May Yet Conquer was the title of the first issue. So was there any part of you that was that considered um, calling it, just keeping it as he may, he may Yet Conquer going forward and having that be the name or did you like really want to change it to A Queen of Mars? Uh I actually wanted to change it to A Dream of Mars, but I second-guessed myself and made the wrong decision. Uh, (laughs) So He May Yet Conquer is the title of the first issue because the first three issues start with a quote from the books, and He May Yet Conquer comes from a quote. Uh, And after I finished the first issue and I started to think about following it up with the second issue, I mean, like, there's already... I'm already kind of thinking about it by the... By the time I finished the first issue, because there's some dialogue in there that gives me places to go. Uh, but when I really started to break down what I what I thought the series would be and where I thought the series where I wanted the series to go and planning for issue two, I knew I needed to bring it all under a more unified heading, a more unified title. And I originally envisioned it as three 
a series of trinities. So like a trinity of trinities, there's going to be nine issues and each trinity would have its own title. And so the title of the first trinity is a queen of Mars. But uh, to talk about like the business side of it on Kickstarter, longevity is more your friend than number one is your friend. So if you are launching a Kickstarter, you don't want every Kickstarter to start over with the number one because then people coming to your Kickstarter won't be looking to either buy the back stock you're offering or they think, oh, well, it's just one. So like, what are the odds he's going to finish it? So promoting your book on Kickstarter as having an increasingly higher number, you know, issue number says to your audience that you are invested in this project, you're committed to this project, and you've produced so much content so far. Uh, So now the whole series is going to be called Queen of Mars when that was only going to be the first trilogy. And I was going to call the whole series A Dream of Mars, but that's probably just going to be you know a single issue, either seven, eight, or nine somewhere. Nice. Yeah, it's always been interesting since I've started doing these Kickstarter conversations to hear about, as well as the books themselves, some of the like behind the scenes and that logistics of doing these Kickstarters, because there's like... Uh, as I sort of mentioned before in other episodes, uh, there are, are, must be like so many different like elements you have to put together, like all like the graphics and deciding all your rewards and then all the promotion and then not even mentioning the fulfillment afterwards. So, yeah, I mean, like each step of the process is way more involved than I thought it would be when I started. But like each step of the process is very rewarding in its own way. So uh, I might as well ask this question now. But this is you've done a few questions. Uh, kickstarters for uh, this series and is there anything in particular that one you've that's worked well that you've continued because it's worked well or and then to anything that's not worked so well that you've sort of improved as you've gone along um so this is my fifth kickstarter overall it's my third in this series Right. Okay. Um, I'm not good at stretch goals, so I'm not really offering. I'm not doing stretch goals uh, this time around. And uh, what's the other thing? I'm doing more uh, alternate covers than I have before, um, because like there is that business aspect of it, and you know I need this to fund so that I can you know print it, ship it, you know get all these rewards and everything filled up. But like, I also am looking forward to what's my next project, what I'm going to do with it next. And so like part of the funding for this issue, I'm going to use towards getting the collection colored. And so trying to figure out, you know, what I'm, what I'm wanting to offer the audience, but how much I need to not just reliably make this project, but help the next project down the road is, is, is a consideration. And you know, I don't stretch goals. I usually mess up. Like, I don't have a good relationship <laughs> with stretch goals. So I'm not doing them this time because they usually end up costing me more time and money than they add value to the experience, the book, the Kickstarter, whatever. Um, I am doing more variant covers because that's something that people have told me they like and appreciate. And one of the things I appreciate about Kickstarter is that you don't have to order, you know, like 20 copies of the regular cover to get one copy of the alternate cover. So, uh, yeah, you know, like the covers I don't draw cost more. So like, and that's reflected in the pricing of the tiers, but it gives, you know, readers an option on which cover they'd like to see and which one they'd like to take home. And I, you know, I, I enjoy that that's something I can 
offer them. Um, Something else. It's kind of driven home how weak my social media game is. Um, I'm not great. I'm not on TikTok. I'm not great at Twitter or Instagram. Just social media in general is kind of a, a blind spot for me because I'm not a frequent consumer of social media. So I'm also not good as a producer of social media. And the biggest thing about Kickstarter is you're not going to build your audience on Kickstarter. You need to bring your audience to Kickstarter. And Learning that lesson across my first two Kickstarters was pretty harrowing at times as, you know, my first Kickstarter, I didn't really know what to expect, but I knew it came in below those expectations. Whereas my second Kickstarter, which was the first Queen of Mars, uh, He May Yet Conquer, I wasn't sure what to expect and it came in way over my expectations. Yeah, because I mean, at the time of recording, you almost looked like, yeah, it's like it's over six and a half thousand dollars. So it was like three times over the... Um, your goal, which, yeah, that, that, that must be a, a great feeling, hopefully. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> um, and yeah, I think it's an interesting point you made about stretch goals, because th- that was something that I hadn't really thought about, where, because I know some people and some Kickstarters are, are very big on that sort of thing as they grow, but yeah, I, I suppose it, it makes sense that if it's going to be like more time and more money and more hassle, then yeah, you just you need to focus on the like main product that everyone is clearly coming to you for, then that makes sense. I mean, that's, that feels fair enough. Yeah. Yeah. Like you kind of don't want to be distracted by it. So yeah, um, like in my first Kickstarter for this book called Rovers and then for my second Mars Kickstarter, both times I kind of allowed myself to become distracted by the stretch goals I was offering. Like no one asked for these stretch goals. No one was like, excited for these stretch goals but i kept trying to make you know a bigger deal out of them than they were and what that accomplished was like pulling my attention away from working on the book and getting the book done and making sure that what i offered in the book was was the most valuable and was the best experience out of the kickstarter and uh so like this time yeah like i'm not doing you know the stretch goals i am doing each Kickstarter, I've done like a, a thank you print, essentially, just a little eight by 10 print that, you know, anyone who backs will receive in the mail. And so I'm still, I still did that this time. And like, I enjoy that, but it's just a one-time kind of expression of how the Kickstarter was going and not this constant ongoing, you know, struggle to generate something new and better and more exciting when what I really should be doing is focusing on getting these pages drawn and, you know, so I can get the book off to the printer as soon as possible. Yeah. So you write and draw, and am I? Uh, I think you might letter it yourself, or is that right? Or... Yeah. Yeah, I love yeah. it. So, like on on the Mars books, I do everything. Um, but I'm so Rovers, my first book, I had colored by Joel Bartlett, and so when I get to the collected edition on Mars and get it colored, I'm gonna have I'm gonna go back to Joel for that. I have yeah. colored a book, Rover or Royo, which was like a Ted Lasso spaghetti western I did last year. And I'm not, I'm not a color. I don't enjoy the process. I don't know how to effectively tell a story through color. I just kind of slap things on the page. So I definitely want Mars to be held to a higher standard than what I could accomplish on my own. So I'll be going back to Joel to get it colored up. And with a Queen of Mars being in black and white, is there anything that's you feel like you've been trying to, or like you have utilized the like the black and white, or, or is it just sort of mainly like a necessity thing? 
Um, I like working in that better. So I didn't even ink the book. I'm just using like, I'm working on the book all digitally, but I'm not using a like hard black line ink brush on, you know, I use Clip Studio Paint to to produce the line work. I, I have this pencil brush that I absolutely love. I know what it's going to do. I know how to use it. I'm very comfortable with it. And I, looked at, and I like the look it offers me. So even when I get it colored, I'm going to keep that, you know, original line work if I can. There'll be some logistics of it as Joel and I figure out, you know, what will look best, but I just enjoy the look that it offers. And I'm just as scared of, you know, black ink as I am of, of color. So necessity, I guess, because I'm not willing to push myself that far quite yet. Yeah. I, I mean, again, f- fair enough. Uh, I mean, uh, I haven't written and drawn in for a few issues now, so I, I think you're okay for now. <laughs> so in terms of more broadly, in terms of, I said that twice, um, like writing and drawing, what's the sort of process with like writing and drawing? Because I know everyone does it differently. Um, yeah, so I, for a story, I usually have a moment that, you know, is at the beginning, the middle, the end. Go figure. It's usually at the end, sometimes at the beginning, less often in the middle. But it's like I have a singular moment that I want to justify. And so the whole story, like that's the theme, right? Like that is theme is you have this one event you want to justify, like whatever decision your characters make or whatever happens to your characters, everything in the book needs to reinforce what happens in that moment. And so, but I start there. uh, If it's at the end of the book, I'll try to work my way to the moment it's if it's at the start of the book i'll try to figure out you know like what's the logical kind of like fallout from this event from this decision from whatever and i'll just make a very loose outline and i'll just throw every idea i have in there into this outline uh and then i'll like put it in a drawer for a week and then i'll make a new list like i won't even look at the old list i'll write down that moment again, and then I'll try to reconstruct my thought process and how I got there last time. Uh, And so that's kind of my first editing process, because anything I don't remember probably was too weak to be included. Anything I did remember probably needs to be there, and I'll come up with new moments to add to the list anyway, because it's been a week and I didn't remember what I was thinking the first time. Uh, So I'll do that. Like Sometimes I'll do that three or four times. Sometimes I'll just do it once. it kind of depends on how soon I want to start drawing. Uh, because after I have that list kind of roughed out, I'll usually start drawing the first couple pages, and that will put me into uh, the mood of the book, I guess, where, you know, the first two pages informs this is the attitude I want, this is the mood I want. Um, I was planning on this one thing happening. But even on page one, I feel like that's not going to be a fit for the story. So I'm going to dump it. Or it's like, oh, I really like the way I drew this guy in the background on panel two. So like, I want to bring him back later on in the book. Um, So I'll start roughing out pages and like fully drawing some pages. I'll go back to the outline and I'll just kind of like bounce back and forth freely. And as it catches my attention between working on pages or working on stories. So like right now on issue three, 
I'm halfway through the pencils on the story and some of the stuff I had planned on is not going to work. Some new ideas have occurred to me. So like I'm going through the process again now where I'm re-outlining the remainder of the book based on what I've drawn already and how is that going to factor into what's going to happen in, in the back half. Uh, and I'll probably do that when I get like three quarters of the way through the book. And before I start, you know, the final sequence, I'll reevaluate it one more time. Uh, and I'll kind of dialogue as I go. Sometimes I'll finish a page and I'll letter it right away because I want to make sure I didn't forget anything. Uh, sometimes I won't letter a page until I've got like five or 10 done. And then I can letter them all at once to promote like a sense of continuity between a discussion or an argument or what's happening. Uh, and a lot of times, even after I letter or draw, like because I am the team, I have kind of a casual attitude towards edits. And if I need to dump whole pages and whole sequences and redraw them and do something new, then like I will because no one else is waiting for me to get pages done so that they can get on to their part of the process. So if at any time it feels like this isn't working and I need to scrap the last two pages and redraw them so that they do work, then yeah, I'll just do that. Uh, yeah. So uh, have you ever had someone like look over your work like a friend or like a, like a brief like editor or, or is it literally just you just working on it just like, um for for most of my books um the only editor i have is my wife and like she'll read right. through it and tell me like you know i don't like this i do like that i don't understand like she's not a comics reader so if she can't understand what's happening then like it definitely needs to be reworked uh because if like your audience can't engage with it or your audience can't you know decipher it then like it's just bad work so uh she's kind of the only editor i've had on my own stuff i recently worked on a book called dream quest that also came to kickstarter it was written by clay adams and on that one i had like an art editor like clay brought in an editor to help him with the script and it was a uh, Frank Pitarisi, who's done work for DC and Marvel, and Frank wanted to be involved with the art decisions too. So like Frank edited the art I was producing and like that was a wonderful experience to have someone come in and tell me this isn't reading right. These panels are good. The continuity between these three pages doesn't work. And like being forced to go back deliberately to evaluate those decisions and take care of that was was fantastic. I loved it. Nice. <clears throat> yeah, it, it it must be a cool experience to just um have that freedom. And I, I know it's, it's not always going to be perfect or ideal, but it must definitely be like a different experience between. I, I don't know if you have an experience like doing art for someone else or anything, but. Uh, yeah, of course, it's going to be something very different. Yeah, yeah. Like, I've only recently started doing, like, commissions and sketches and right, stuff. Yeah. And I've only drawn, like, Dream Quest, which I drew with Clay, and I drew an issue of White Ash for Charlie Stickney that he took the Kickstarter last year. And, like, in both of those experiences, they were... I'd worked with both of them previously on short stories, but these are the first time I'd done complete books for other writers and both times it was a wonderful learning experience because I was being forced to evaluate my work through someone else's uh guidelines you know someone else's wants and needs from the project and it was it forces you to grow in ways you don't think about when like you're your only boss and again like too it was that idea that 
if the people I was drawing this book for couldn't understand what I was saying, then like the fault was mine and I needed to reevaluate how I was doing it. The fault wasn't theirs because, you know, they couldn't understand what I was going for. Yeah. So when, when looking through your like Kickstarters and of course this current one, one thing that stood out to me, is the idea of the safer work and the not safer work, like variants of the variants, so like the J Jasumian and, and, and Barsumian like um, variants. Yeah. When did that sort of idea come about? Because we sort of talked about earlier the ideas of the like skimpy women, and so I thought yeah, it was interesting so... to have those two different versions. Sorry, yeah. Yeah, in the original Barsumian books, like uh, Carter describes the inhabitants, John Carter the main character of the first three books uh, describes the inhabitants of Barsoom, which is their word for Mars. Like they're adorned with jewels and like weapon harnesses, but like no other adornment. Everyone else is like the naked is the day they hatched right, from yeah. their egg. Uh, and I like to draw naked people is, is certainly part of the answer, but I didn't want to draw just topless women. Uh, mm. If I was going to draw naked people, I wanted to draw everyone naked and if i wasn't going to draw mm, right. people i didn't want to draw anyone naked so barsoom is the martian word for mars and jasoom is the martian word for earth so it felt like this is you know a neat way to to talk about it and it's you know something i could do easily enough so there's the barsoomian and the jasoomian versions of the book where everyone is naked in the Barsoomian and no one is naked in the Jasoomian. And like, it was helpful because there is a part of, you know, the Edgar Rice Burroughs audience that isn't looking for nudity everywhere. So like, I like to have both options. Um, on the, the, the thing I am doing differently is that on the first campaign, I printed both the Barsoomian and the Jasoomian versions of the book, but I sold hardly any of the Jasoomian version of the book. So it only exists as a PDF for the uh second and third issues uh only the barsumian edition sees print just because the the disparity between orders on those two was so large it didn't make sense to uh because again like i'm trying to fund projects down the road like it doesn't make sense for me to get a whole run of books printed that uh no one wants now nor would they probably want down the road but a pdf is you know easy enough to to put together and offer to people so i kept the the spirit of the jasumine alive in a in a pdf form on issues two and three yeah because i mean just looking at the, the the current kickstarter page there are currently only 12 backers just getting the jasumian uh variant of three compared to 40 of the barsumian of three yeah currently. yeah and so... like that was the same thing in the first campaign like i only needed to Outside of like a combined package where people got both versions of the book, for the first Kickstarter, I only needed to mail out 12 copies of the Jasumian on its own. Uh, so it was, I mean, it was something that was pretty easy to move on from, but like, well, this didn't, this didn't work. It's not worth the, the printing cost. So I won't be, you know, doing this again. Yeah. And I, I, I should have clarified that that was the PDF was three, but yeah, yeah but, but, but like, even just looking at the, other things it's the same sort of like ratio so that's interesting i mean it makes sense but still interesting yeah. because uh sort of like on the, the surface the sort of like i, I know it was all mentioned dynamite earlier but those sort of skimpy like women it, it's sort of never really been something that i'm going to feel particularly like appealed to it like 
I am a gay man, so it, it wouldn't appeal to me, but I'm not the target audience. But um, it, it's just always fascinating to see. Uh, and, and especially when, as we talked about near the beginning, when you can bring that nuance into it and those layers and make it like an interesting story rather than just... Yeah. The, well, like, one of the things I, like, I try to do with like the nudity that I draw is that I try to make it as, I guess, not unappealing, but as bland as possible. Right, uh, yeah. Because this is a world where people just exist naked. Like, it's ingrained into their culture. So I, you know... I'm not drawing people wandering around with like erections all the time and the women aren't like constantly posing, you know, as if they're modeling for a pinup. Like I'm just trying to draw people who are going about their, you know, otherwise everyday lives. They just don't wear clothes. I'm trying to like normalize that idea of nudity as opposed to drawing, trying to draw, you know, every single panel as titillatingly as, as possible. Uh, And like I have, like I have and I do draw work that is, you know, like erotic in nature, again with naked people. But like that's not this. I'm just trying to prevent it's it's one of those things from the book that like could I be interpreted either way. You know, it's like Edgar Rice Burroughs says like everyone was completely naked as the day where they were born. But, you know, he wrote that in twenty thirteen. So like if women were you're 19, 12. So like if women, you know, had their ankles showing, is that what he meant by naked? There are those discussions in the Edgar Rice Burroughs community about what exactly he meant by unclothed or unadorned. Uh, and so kind of like, you know, harkening back to my experience when I first read it, like I assumed like they were just legit naked. So when I got to do the story, like I was going to draw them naked, but I didn't want it to be you know, like, oh, am I on camera? Quick, strike a pose every time <laughs> someone was on page. Yeah, like naked for the sake of being naked rather than for the sake of being like sexual or titillating. Yeah. yeah. And I know and, like there have like some people who have talked to me about like, you know, well, if it doesn't matter, why don't they just wear clothes? And they're like, again, like, I just like to draw naked people. Naked people are fun. So like, fine, just artistic license. I guess if you like want to pin me down to the ground and why, then like artistic license because I could but I also try to present it in a way that you know passes by without note or merit I like to think by the time you get you know to page seven or eight like you don't even notice it anymore because you're invested and involved with the story and what people may or may not be wearing isn't you know of primary importance any longer yeah and it is a like personal thing like it will be up to um, like every person to decide what they like feel about it and what they're like comfortable with and what they feel is appropriate but it, it sort of reminds me of a larger conversation about the idea of like the line between uh, well I saw the discourse from before this happened before about like women that can be sort of like attractive and hot and just characters in general without necessarily being like sexualized it's about I suppose uh, the idea of making them especially when like like women uh, women creators are involved when they can like just because they're not written for the male gaze doesn't mean they need to be unattractive they can like still be like attractive but just without necessarily being for the male gaze specifically it's a it's a tough line to walk sometimes but it's an interesting sort of conversation and balance to have yeah yeah like i try not to be you know like male gazy about it um, mm. even though I am a dude and like I try not to like I don't go through and like how many total vulvas are there in the book how many total penises are in the book like I need to make it <laughs> yeah. a one for one like I I just try to draw the shot I want to draw I don't try to 
you know, censor anything through, you know, convenient word balloons or wisps of smoke or anything. I'm just trying to draw the book I want to draw and the book I want people to read. And like, sometimes there's nudity involved, sometimes there's not. Frequently there is. Yeah. Before we start to wrap up, are there any other influences apart from Edgar Rice Barrows, maybe more generally, that you sort of feel like inspired by or that you think about a lot? Um... I listen to a lot of old-time radio shows, uh, like The Shadow, uh, Philip Marlowe, Sam Spade, a lot of detective shows, adventure shows, the old Superman radio show, there's an old Tarzan show. Um, That informs a lot of my dialogue choices, because through the theater of radio, you have to explain things the audience can't see. So you have to include in dialogue uh, exposition, information, location, setting. Like You have to include all these things that the audience doesn't have access to. And so when I'm dialoguing, I don't have any caption boxes in this book or in any of these books. So I have to explain a lot through the dialogue and how can I put that information out there in a way that feels and reads natural instead of like, oh, we need to shoehorn in this exposition or someone needs to monologue to do whatever. Uh, Part of the advantage of Edgar Rice Burroughs is that he writes the books kind of flowery where people will have like lofty speeches and you know they kind of talk around things before they come to the point and they like to make you know, grandstands and just orate the hell out of it. And so I do have a little bit of leeway with that where I can keep it in line with the nature of the book, but still get, you know, a lot of verbiage out there. And they're pretty flowery, but like trying to work in information you need into the dialogue in a believable way. Like I get a lot of that from old time radio shows and how they had to accomplish the same thing. Um, Artistically, like I, I mean, I love John Buscema. I love Dan DiCarlo. I love uh, Pascal Ferry. I love, uh, what's his name? John Bogdanoff. You know, like there are all these artists I grew up reading um, that at one point or another, it's like, well, if I don't draw exactly like them, I'm a failure as an artist. And so uh, there is some of that in the book where like, how would, you know, person X have drawn this? How would they approach the scene? And I'll, I'll do some of that if it's a spot I can't figure out. Uh, and I remember like part of my decision to not ink it um, because the Wolverine Origins series by Andy Kubert and Paul Jenkins, I think, uh, like they didn't ink that book. It went straight from Andy Kubert to Richard Eisenhove. Eisenhove? Eisenhove? I don't know how you say his name. And like he would just color it from the pencil lines. Like they would skip the inking stage. And I remember really liking that look back in the day. And because it's all digital, I'm not trying to like take a photograph plate of this to reproduce, you know, on a mass scale. Then it's like I don't have to ink it because technology has advanced that far. And that was, you know, like I didn't. I don't like to ink. I didn't want to ink and I didn't feel forced to ink because I didn't have to. And I still really liked Wolverine Origins. Um, i trying to think what other influences. I mean, I just read a lot of like older fiction. Like most, the, the majority of what I read is fiction from the 30s to the 50s, sometimes the 60s. And it's just kind of like a very fast-paced, casual, laissez-faire, you know, the rules are for other people kind of characterization, which again is is present in, you know, Edgar Rice Burroughs as well. But it's something that appeals to me as a storyteller where uh, you just kind of blaze past things. Like one of the things I love most about the first John Wick movie is how effortlessly it world builds because it never stops to explain anything. It's just like, 
this dude has a thing that says this other dude has to do a thing. So he just does it. And like no one comes along and says to the audience, now sit down. I'm going to explain to you that like because this token exchanged hands between these two specific characters at a time in the past means that this character is now beholden to that character to did this character. Like they just take you along for the ride and they expect you to figure it out as you go along and, and keep up. And so I definitely try to bring that with me into, into these stories and not, you know, slow down to explain that like, well, in Martian culture, this means this specific thing or that specific thing. Nice. And it's cool that you bring up John Wick because with the fourth one coming out soon, I I finally got around to watching the, the first one the other week. I, I, I'm, not, I'm not sure about um, over there or any other countries, but here, here in England and the UK, we have the, the, the first three on just Amazon Prime, so that was cool. But I, I digress, because my like review, my immediate thoughts of that first movie was, as you say, it has one note, in a sense, but I thought it did that one note like extremely well. Yeah. Because yeah, right. It's so it, it, it would have been so easy to because you have like the Transformers movies. I've never seen them, but I, I know about the reputation of like Michael Bay. Yeah. And like I know like say like the Fast and Furious movies. My my point being, I, I haven't seen either of those franchises, so I won't speak about them. But I've seen lots. I've heard lots about them, and the idea that after all I've heard about John Wick. It could have just been very, like, cheap and... Maybe not cheap, but, like, sort of, like, cheerful action fair where it's nothing too amazing, but it's, like, it's fun and it gets the job done. But I was sort of watching it, and I was like, this is, like, gorgeously cinematically shot. Like, I was not yeah. expecting this. And right? like you say, like, yeah, like, like the lore, and uh, I'm excited to, to watch the two and three and see how it builds up. Yeah. Uh, one is definitely the best so far. Fair enough. I'm, I'm still, yeah. <laughs> I'll still check them out. Uh, but yeah, one thing that one of my last questions that I w- wanted to ask about, but I sort of forgot and then I remembered is it's not a sort of like typical, like comic book size. It's a bit more square. Than... Oh yeah. It's the, it's the eight and a half by 11. It's like a magazine mm. size. Uh, that's it. I really yeah. enjoy, uh, Thorgal? Uh, I don't remember. I'm blanking on everyone who writes it, but it's, it's French, right? Thorgal is, uh, but like Black Sad, like oh, like yeah, the European yeah. comics, you know, have more of that like eight and a half by eleven like square aspect ratio to them, and I really like that. I really wanted to play with that. So making it a magazine size book, like it gives me more space per page to fill up with dialogue because I love dialogue, um, but just more space per page to play around with. And I kind of like the dimensions aesthetically better as well as you kind of approach that square shape because in the second issue. I treated, I did it almost entirely as a series of two page spreads because you have so much room with that magazine size that you can really, you know, just kind of experiment and play around. And it was, it was a lot of fun. Uh, so like, yeah, the first issue is, you know, all single pages, but the second issue is, is two page spreads almost from start to finish. And it was, it was a lot of fun to put the book together that way. It took much longer than I had anticipated uh, because it kind of changed the nature of the panels. Uh, but it was it was a lot of fun, and I really like those dimensions. I am not using magazine dimensions for anything else. I've done like Roy, Royo or Rovers um, or both like standard American comic, which is like 6.6 by 10.25 maybe. Uh, but I do I do like the magazine 
size. And even if, you know, I don't continue the Mars series after I reach kind of like my original ending point, I'll probably do something else in that size and format just because I enjoy it. Nice. Yeah. I, I suppose it does give the, like even just sort of looking at the covers and then looking at the fairy pages, it, it, everything's got more room to breathe, which adds something. It, it, it's nothing to just make it unique and stand out, I suppose, isn't it? Yeah. And that's kind of a, I mean, it's, it's an aspect that helps when you take your book to Kickstarter. Um, like for collectors, it's maybe not as nice because it doesn't easily fit into, you know, right, stand- yeah. it doesn't fit in a standard long box. You need a magazine size box, but it is something neat you can take to Kickstarter as kind of like a quirky extra, you know, like my book isn't like the other books kind of aspect to it. Uh, but like, because of Kickstarter's business model where like I'm not trying to sell my book to a hundred thousand people that may or may not care about it. I'm trying to sell my book to, you know, 100 to just a thousand people who do care about it. And the quirky size doesn't matter as much in that context because I'm trying to attract you to the work based on the work and not that it's a regular comic book size like that's not it's not a consideration for me i don't have a production process in place that makes it infeasible to produce a book of this size or that you know because everything else i do is standard size this also needs to be standard size there's just a lot of room for individuality and experimentation on kickstarter and it feels like it would be somewhat foolish not to take advantage of that, given the opportunity. So uh, that's why I went with the with the magazine size. Like it just wasn't. I liked it, and I could, and there was no one to tell me I, I couldn't. So just go for it. Like that is the beauty of Kickstarter. Yeah, why not? Yeah, yeah I suppose especially when if you're already like taking all the effort to like kickstart it, then you might as well do it in a way you want, or and especially like you creative way that you, know, like, you don't have to conform to the like standard comic book ideas so what why would you want why would you if you don't want to yeah yeah, yeah. before we uh, and i said sorry but so one of, my, one of my last questions is <laughs> um you, you mentioned earlier that you'd have to work on superman if you ever got the chance so the, any other superheroes that you'd like especially like to work on if happens to get the chance uh sort of like dc had a book in the 70s and 80s called warlord which like he's not a superhero but like yeah yeah, i would love to do a new warlord series um any of like the dc magic books arian lord of atlantis eric warlord claw the unconquered like the sword and sorcery fantasy stuff i'd like uh superman every oh legion of superheroes i like i would love to do a book for them uh the only marvel character i ever really read or got into was uh silver surfer as a kid i have been reading some like chris claremont x-men stuff recently but i feel like I'm still new enough to Marvel. I'm in that trap where like, I would just want to rewrite the comics I read instead of, you know, writing new stories for them. Uh, but like superheroes specifically as a genre, really Superman and the Legion of Superheroes. I don't know. Nope, that's not true. Rob Liefeld's Extreme Studios from Image Comics, like 92 to 96, they are objectively bad books. They are poorly drawn a lot of times they are poorly written i mean like it's not all garbage there are some highlights but i love those books so so much if i could work on literally any superhero universe property and just do whatever the hell i wanted with it it would be 
extreme studios like i don't i don't know what it is about those books but they just i think more than anything like those are the books that make me still feel like i'm 12 and going to the comic shop and i just i love them to this day yeah that's always fun when you can get that feeling from a book again as you say even if they're not maybe the best as long as they just bring you that childhood childlike joy that's all that can be great and so on a similar vein i it was been cool to see you around the you comic geeks and yourself there so and is there anything in particular that you've been reading lately that you've enjoyed um i've actually been re-reading my way through warlord i've been rereading extreme studios i never collected the wildstorm stuff when i was growing up so i've been finding a bunch of that stuff in like 50 cent and dollar bins recently and when i get more of those runs completed i'll probably dive in to that stuff like the last i get most of my new comics from kickstarter like white ash from charlie stickney he has a campaign running right now for glarian like besides the fact that i got to draw a book for him like his stuff is absolute gold and i love it uh clay adams who i work with like i like i genuinely like all of his stuff it's nice that i work for people whose work i actually enjoy and i don't need to draw a book just for a paycheck um but like mm. i don't think i've bought it's been literal decades since i bought a marvel book i i don't even know what the last marvel book i bought was uh maybe a j michael straczynski's squadron supreme uh but like even i i quit dc at the new 52 i returned to dabble during rebirth uh, uh but i i bailed on that pretty early again um, I just, I don't know. I mean, I collected Superman, like the entire triangle era of Superman. I have collected and in long boxes and I read through that. I'm just kind of always reading through that constantly. When I get to the end of it, I just start back over with the burn miniseries and go back through to 2000 again. Um, but like newer books, it's almost all Kickstarter books. And there's so much on Kickstarter, just like the breadth of stories, the variety of stories and genres and teams. Like you can find almost anything on Kickstarter if you're looking for a physical book and like especially with all the web comic options you have now like webtoons and global comics like literally any story you can think of like someone is probably working on it somewhere and you can dive in like it is truly a golden age for comics right now just it's amazing it's amazing to see and read and to be a part of creating nice yeah 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 it's always cool when there, uh, I know there's some series that I just like absolutely love, and you can just feel the like creativity and the passion and uh, everything just coming off them. It, it's yeah, yeah, so, yeah. It's just it's <laughs> it's a it's a great time to be alive. <laughs> yeah. So the Kickstarter wraps up March fifteenth. Yeah, March fifteenth, somewhere around noon my time i'm in uh, central standard time uh ran for 30 days it'll be issue three of queen of mars and like this kind of wraps up the fine this wraps up the, the the first story arc um so the next mars kickstarter will be coming later this year and that's going to be the collected edition uh somewhere probably like october november i want to get the the coloring work not all the way done but like mostly done before i launched that kickstarter and start uh putting that out there but that'll be towards the end of the year nice yeah it's a good anyone go support uh queen of mars issue three and uh, oh oh I, sp- I suppose the the only thing to mention is you want to talk briefly through some of the uh, uh, 
reward. I think, I think you mentioned some of it, but you know, just oh, the reward. Yeah, yeah so, is there anything uh, in particular you want to mention for the rewards? Almost, almost we got. I thought there was something else. <laughs> uh, so, like each, you know, depending on which cover you like, you can get each cover on its own. You can get bundles of covers, packages. Um, probably the, the standout ones are the uh, the ones with original art. So, like I offer original art in three ways, four ways really. So the first one is like you can get a your backing board will come with a sketch on it. And I just actually worked on a couple of those today for, for Dream Quest. I, I think it's just really fun. Like you don't, you know, see your backing board all the time, but I think it's like a nice, you know, nice touch. You know, you open up your book, like you flip it over and like, oh, there's like a neat little sketch back there. Um, sketch covers kind of fall into the same category, except it makes more sense to display your sketch covers with the cover out instead of your comic with the backing board out. Uh, and then the I'm not great at likenesses, so I offered draw me ins on the Rovers campaign, but uh, instead of draw me ins like where you could cameo in the book with uh, Mars two and rovers and now with this or royo and now with this campaign is i did like draw me in pages so like i will draw you a custom page featuring you know character or characters of your choice going through like a a short one page adventure and i've had at least one person take me up on that each campaign and they're just they're a lot of fun like it's a more personal project for for both of us like you get a page centered around the character instead of like a cameo in a in a panel or two and it's fun for me because it gives me a chance to try out different things and try different experiments to to make that work and to, you know just think about comics in a, in a different way it's like this is for this is a comic page for a specific person with a specific goal in mind and like how can i get the most across in a single page worth of space so like those those are really fun and i enjoy those quite a bit and uh with those like i'll give you like a digital file of it too but then you'll also receive uh an 11 by 17 print of it uh i don't i don't know what that converts to in in centimeters um i guess it's what like tabloid size i don't know what that is in a size or b size either uh but those are a lot of fun I enjoy those. And then something I just did as part of Dream Quest I'm offering here would be like uh, big sketches that are like measure 18 inches by 24 inches. Um, like I just got like this pad of like poster sized Bristol board that I've been messing around with. And I did a couple of big sketches just for fun. And it's like, oh, this is this was a lot more fun than I thought. So I offered those as as rewards and uh, I had a, a couple people take me up on those for Dream Quest, so like I'm gonna start on those tomorrow. If you're looking for something obnoxiously large, nice. And yes, finally, I I, I won't keep you any longer. But <laughs> where can people find you on the various social medias? Um, so I am Mick Comiker, M C C O M I. C-K-E-R on uh, Twitch, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, Hive, uh, DeviantArt. Uh, I don't stream every day on Twitch, but I, I try to stream most days during the week. I like I like streaming because it, it keeps me honest while I'm working uh, because mm, anyone right, could yeah. pop in at any time. And, and it's just fun to chat to people. Like I've met a lot of other comics artists through Twitch and have done like co-streams with other artists during Twitch. And it's like, it's a nice callback to this bullpen era that I never got to be a part of. 
And so that's nice. Um, and then probably Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, probably where I'm like most active, but that is an incredibly relative term because I'm not super active. <laughs> I mean, I try to post at least once a day, but it's just not, it's not ever anything that lives at the front of my brain and I remember to uh, do regularly. Yeah, it can be tough to keep up sometimes. I guess League of Comic Geeks, I should shout that out because that's yes. where I met you. Like, that's actually been a really fun site to to join and to experiment with. Um, I don't have all of my comic collection logged in there because it's not as easy as, like, Comic Collectors is. I think that's the one I use. So, like, mostly I just have, like, my Extreme Studio stuff logged in there. And, you know, I like to share art there because I like to share art everywhere but then. I'm also like nervous like am I using this site wrong or like people are going to be pissed at me if I just like keep trying to flood this with my you know art so like I try to I probably make more of an effort there <laughs> to be engaged in the community than I do anywhere else uh, I think because those are my people right like we all love comics there yeah it's fun because there are the comic elements of things like Instagram and Twitter but New Comic Geeks is like exclusively for that like, like if you want to find comic fans then then like you need to go there it's, it's a great site i always love it and talk about it regularly but uh what was i gonna say i can't remember what i was going to say i, I lost my train of thought <laughs> but yes yeah, so it, 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 it will come to me uh, if, if i included something in, in the intro then then you already know and, and otherwise yeah, yeah, it's just in general a, a great site. So uh, yeah, I always enjoy yeah. it. And, oh yeah, oh yeah. I was gonna say there we go. I was gonna say that it, it's like it's a, it's a decent sized community. It's like a big community, but it's not like Instagram and Twitter big. So it's quite yeah, fun it's to... not. It doesn't feel overwhelming. Like you don't have to spend that many days there before you start to recognize people and be able to you know, hold discussions that go from day to day instead of, hey, for 30 minutes, we're just going to tweet furiously at one another and then forget about it. Yeah, and especially because it's quite cool because at least nowadays you can, you have like special like like reviews and like special like community posts that you can like attach to the comics. So rather than just, as you yeah. said, like, like sending out tweets into the ether, you can actually yeah. like... Sick. Yeah, because I've thought about like reviewing my way through like the Extreme Studios books, but like really all of my reviews would be like five stars. This was hot nonsense, <laughs> but I couldn't put it down. So like that's not helpful. I mean, reviews are subjective, so if that's what. <laughs> <laughs> Oh dear. Yeah, yeah. This has been fun. I'm glad you reached out. I'm glad we we got the chance to talk. So yeah, definitely go and support uh, the Kickstarter if you're interested, and uh, yeah, keep up with Nick's work and all the places you mentioned. Yeah, and I would I'd love to come back sometime for sure. This is a yeah. good. It was a good talk. I feel like we talked about you know something topics of substance, which is always nice. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And um, yeah, I feel like it's quite nice when there's a like theme of the conversation, like there's sort of like topics that uh, when what I'm trying to say, it's always fun when the book that we're talking about sort of springboards us to talk about other things in like a wider context, like. The idea of like comics as like professional fan fiction again in air quotes and like the your inspirations and yeah it, it, it's all it's all fun great great stuff yeah yeah no it was great thanks for uh thanks for letting me for for having me on yeah thanks and have a great rest of your day thank you welcome back I hope you enjoyed that conversation.
Unfortunately, that's all we've got time for on this episode. I want to thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed the episode, please rate and review the show five stars wherever you're listening. I would really appreciate it. If you want to keep up to date on new episodes, please subscribe. And if you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, you can email the show at joetalkscomics at gmail.com. You can find the podcast on Twitter at joetalkscomics. And finally, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at joelovescomics, where we can continue talking comics. That's all for now, and I hope to see you next time. Bye!